A.W. Tozer famously said that what comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. That what comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. Not your circumstances, not your bank account, not your family life or lack thereof, but what comes into your mind is the most important thing about you. And nowhere has this proved more true and tragic than the life of Adolf Hitler. And that might surprise you. What in the world does Adolf Hitler have to do with God? Well, in one sense, everything. You see, in the early 1930s, when Adolf Hitler was rising to power, one person in particular was raising a red flag over and over and over again. Watch this guy. And he wasn't a politician. He wasn't an historian. He was actually a theologian. His name was Karl Barth. And as Hitler was rising to power in the early 1930s, Karl Barth was teaching at a seminary there in Germany. And what he noticed about Hitler in his speeches and his writing shook him to his core. Because what he said was, Hitler isn't just practicing wrong thinking, he's practicing wrong thinking about God. He noticed something very strange in the way Hitler talked about God, and Hitler talked about God a lot. And here's what Bart said later on. He said this, Perhaps you can recall now how when Hitler used to speak about God, he called him only Almighty. But it is not only the Almighty who is God. He is God the Father Almighty. God is not only supreme power, and the man who calls God only Almighty misses God in the most terrible way. Do you see what Barton noticed in Hitler? For Hitler, God was only might. For Hitler, God was only sheer power. And once Hitler viewed God that way, he viewed all of life that way. His view of God shaped his view of everything, including what we would see in the atrocities of Nazi Germany. If God is only power, then life must be about only power. Getting it, keeping it. You see, A.W. Tozer is right. Your view of God is the most important thing about you. Because your view of God this morning will change how you view everything. Yourself, the world, your prayer life. So the question that we must ask this morning, right, is how do I need to view God? That's the most important question. And this is the exact reason the church has historically celebrated Trinity Sunday. Because the Trinity is the most important doctrine of the Christian faith. And that is because the Trinity tells us exactly who our God is. In our passage this morning, Paul is going to tell us two things about the Trinity. Because God is Trinity, Paul is going to tell us, number one, God is much bigger than you think. And number two, God is much closer than you think. And I'll go through those one by one. First, because God is Trinity, God is much bigger than you think this morning. Look back at 2 Corinthians 13, 14, and notice we're jumping in at the very last verse of this letter, which means we're leaving out a lot of background. We're leaving out a lot of context. But if you know anything about the church there at Corinth, you know there's been a lot going on. In fact, if you know anything about this church, you know the Corinthians were an absolute mess. In fact, if you feel like your life is a mess, take a few moments this week and read through First and Second Corinthians and take a big, deep breath out. It's going to be okay. I guarantee you, you can't match the mess at Corinth. When you read through Paul's letter, it's almost too painful to read. It's his most personal letter Because there's division going on over leadership. People's fighting over who they should follow. There's division going on among the body. Which person has the best spiritual gifts? 
What's better, marriage or singleness? What's better, men or women? So much division. And on top of that, you have all these really, really deep sin issues. Not the polite sins, but the really, really, really big sins. Like sexual sin, incest, people suing each other, people eating food offered to idols, and other people's judging them for that. As you read through the letter, you realize, what is Paul going to do with these people? As their pastor, how is he going to pastor them through this from afar? Well, Paul does it through the Trinity. This benediction, this closing, is Paul's fullest closing in all of his letters. Nowhere else in his letters does he reveal the full Trinity for his people in this way. 2 Corinthians 13, 14. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. What is Paul's answer for the mess in Corinth? It's the Trinity. Paul, for some reason, thinks no matter how big their issues are, the Trinity is actually big enough to handle them all. And he's right. Because this is the exact same thing that Jesus does in his last words of his followers. We've been looking a lot at John 14 through 17, the upper room discourse, where his followers are troubled because Jesus is about to be crucified. They're anxious. They're distressed. They have no comfort. And what does Jesus give them again and again and again in those three chapters? He gives them the Father, and he gives them the Son, and he gives them the Holy Spirit. When Paul opens up his heart, when Jesus opens up his heart, what comes out? It's the Trinity. So what does that mean? What does it mean for us that God is Trinity? You see it in the passage. Paul gives them a blessing from the one true and living God that eternally exists in three distinct persons. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And this is what the Christian church has confessed from the very beginning, making it unique among all religions. We are the only faith that confesses one God that exists in three distinct persons. We worship one God, not three gods. And this one God exists as a Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit forever. If you want a really good definition of this, really concise and clean, you can see it in your confession of faith on page 6. What we just confessed from Westminster, which is why we have confessions, when it says, how many persons are there in the Godhead? And you get the Trinity. There are three persons, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. And these three are one God, the same in substance, equal in power and glory. So who is your God this morning? The Trinity. One God in three persons. Do you all have any questions? No, in all seriousness, at this point, it can be really tempting to say, okay, one God and three distinct persons. What does that mean? Explain it for me. It can be tempting to try to, to want to figure this God out, try to get our minds wrapped around it. But notice Paul and Jesus and really the rest of the New Testament doesn't see the Trinity as a problem to solve, but more of a God to worship. In fact, if you look throughout church history, those who try to fully explain the Trinity actually end up denying the Trinity and become heretics in and of themselves. And we still do this today, don't we? Trying to figure out who our God is, trying to figure out what the Trinity is, we come up with these analogies. Our finite brains just trying to explain our infinite God. So you hear things like this when you hear about the Trinity. The Trinity is kind of like a three-leaf clover. It's one main leaf in three different parts. But then you realize that doesn't work because God isn't just three different parts. He's three distinct persons. So you say, well, let's throw that out. 
Maybe he's like H2O. God the Father, he feels a little cold sometimes like ice. So we need to heat him up. And when we heat him up, he comes like the sun, like liquid. Then we heat him up even more and things get crazy like gas, like the spirit. And you realize, no, that doesn't work either. Because God the Father doesn't morph into the Son, and God the Son doesn't morph into the Spirit. They're three distinct persons existing forever. The best one I've ever heard was from a college student who apparently in a moment of divine revelation the night before showed up at Bible study and said God was like three-in-one body wash. Which made me leave the Bible study immediately and, and regret going into ministry. Do you see what we're doing here with all these analogies? After we're done explaining our God as a three-leaf clover or water or body wash, there's nothing in our God left to worship. We've explained him and explained him and explained him away, and we're no longer excited. We're no longer overwhelmed. We're no longer overcome by our glorious God who exists as one God in three persons. None of our analogies work because they all come from us. They all come from down here, and God is much bigger than us. Not bigger as in just larger, as in transcendently different than us. Different category than us. And that's actually really good news for you this morning. Because a God you cannot fully explain is actually God. If you could fully explain God, then you would by definition be God. And if you're a non-Christian here this morning, that's something I really want you to think about. If you could fully understand God, wouldn't that make us God? Doesn't it make sense if there is a God that he would be much bigger than us? That his ways would not be our ways, his thoughts would not be our thoughts? This is exactly the point the great theologian Augustine came to when he was writing his book on the Trinity, which took him 16 years. So if the greatest theologian outside the Bible took 16 years to write a book on the Trinity, give yourself a little grace on this. But in in those years of going back and forth, writing the Trinity, he came to a point where he was just stopped up. He was confused. He was overwhelmed. He did not know how to get words on the paper. And so in order to clear his mind, he took a break and he took a walk down the beach. And the story goes, as he was walking down the beach, there's a little boy there that he kept seeing running back and forth from his spot in the sand to the ocean, back to his spot, back to the ocean. And as he got closer, he saw that the boy had a shell in his hand. And the, shell had a, and the boy had a little hole dug, and he kept going to the ocean, dipping the water out, bringing it back into the hole, going back with the shell, dipping more, going back to the hole. And as he got closer, Augustine called over to him and said, Son, what are you doing? And the boy answered back, I'm trying to get this ocean into my hole. And Augustine laughed, as you all laugh. And he said, My child, you can never fit the bigness of the ocean into that tiny hole. And in that moment, Augustine said it clicked with him that he had been doing the exact same thing. At that moment, it clicked that he had been trying to fit the infinite, glorious trinity of God into his finite mind. The trinity, the most glorious thing in all creation, one God and three distinct persons, the same in substance, co-equal and co-eternal, deserving all praise and glory forever, the perfect unity and diversity, all in of himself And he was trying to fit that into his brain, into his finite mind. Augustine finished the book because once Augustine realized he could never fully explain this God, he could finally start enjoying him. And so can you. When it comes to God this morning, we are all little children at the ocean. 
having no idea how in the world we're going to fit him into our tiny lives. So the first question you must ask yourself about the training this morning is, are you okay with that? I know that can be hard. I know we, can, we love to try to figure things out. I know we want explanations for everything. We want all our questions answered. But are you okay with a God that is actually bigger than you? Are you okay with a God that has thoughts greater than your thoughts, that will do things in ways that you might not completely understand, that's beyond your fullest comprehension? Because if you can, if you can settle your mind down and actually see God as he is, as God, you can actually might start enjoying him. Because this morning, you don't have to figure out how to perfectly know God because God has come to make himself known to you. And that's the second point. We've seen the bigness of the God in the Trinity. Now let's look at the closeness of the God in the Trinity and how he reveals himself to us. You see, as Christians, we don't believe God is Trinity because of shamrocks or eggs or H2O or whatever. We believe in God as Trinity because we have Jesus. He's the one that shows us that God is Trinity. You see, the Trinity is a wonderful mystery but not mystery in the way that you might think. Mystery in the Bible is never about a secret that you can't figure out. Mystery in the Bible is about a secret that must be revealed to you by grace. And how is it revealed to us? Look back at 2 Corinthians 13, 14. Where does Paul start? He starts his benediction with the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that word grace there just means gift which means God has revealed himself to us through the gift of his son, Jesus. That's what Jesus tells us, right? All throughout the Gospels, he is the son of God. And so what does that mean? If he's the son of God, he must have a father. And what does that father do? Well, Paul tells us he loves. And this is so, so important to see. Not just for your view of God, but your view of everything. Taking the general vagueness that we usually think about God and seeing him as God the Father loving, God the Son in grace, and God the Spirit in fellowship. This verse isn't just a throwaway verse at the end of a letter, like we might reply with an email, sincerely or best. No, this benediction, the love of God for the Son in the fellowship of the Spirit, has been the heartbeat of God from all eternity. In this benediction exists all that God is and therefore all that God is for you. Have you ever asked yourself that question? Have you ever asked yourself the question, what has been God been doing from all eternity? Before creation, before everything that we see, what, what was he doing? Maybe you don't ask yourself questions like that. I have young kids, so I have to try to distract myself all the time with these questions. But what was God doing before creation? Jesus tells us in John 17, 24, and listen to this, this is Unbelievable. He says, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me. And here's what God has been doing from all eternity. Because you love me before the foundation of the world. Before God created anything, before he was a ruler, before anything else, our God is a father eternally loving his son. This is why we can actually say God is love. Because from all eternity, he has had someone to love. 
He has been loving the Son in the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. So that means he did not create in order to love. He created out of that love. Which is why when you look up in the sky at night, you don't see three stars. You see stars you can't count. He created out of the abundance of who he is. A God who is eternally love. And it gets better. Because this benediction, the love of the Father and the grace of the Son by the fellowship of the Holy Spirit didn't just stay up there in heaven, but came bursting forth when Jesus shows up on earth. Do you remember Jesus' baptism right before he goes into public ministry? And if your parents in here, they're teaching your kids about the Trinity, Jesus' baptism is probably the best place to start. It's much more helpful than other analogies because in Jesus' baptism, you have the full Trinity on display for us. And what's happening at Jesus' baptism? He's baptized immediately, and he goes up from the water, and the heavens open up, bursting forth. And the Spirit of God descends like a dove and rests on Jesus. And then a voice from the heaven, from the Heavenly Father, says, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Do you see the Trinity? Do you see all three persons? The benediction of Paul right here in this passage, the voice of the Father loving, the Son receiving, the Spirit descending and resting. And if you watch Jesus throughout the Gospels in that lens, you watch Jesus and you see the Trinity everywhere. He's never alone throughout the Gospels. The love of the Father through the life of the Son who is living in constant dependence on the Spirit. They're all three claiming their rightful positions as God, and they're all three pointing glory to each other. And that leads us all the way up to the cross, where it becomes almost too beautiful to imagine what is going on. Why did Jesus come? Why is he on the cross? To take all that God has been from eternity and share it with you this morning. On the cross... You see Paul's benediction again. The Father in His great love takes your sin and lays it upon His Son. On the cross, the Son comes in His grace and bears your own sins in His body. And the Spirit comes in to raise Christ from the dead and bring Christ's work to be applied to your heart. Not only showing you what salvation is, but then giving you the grace to actually believe it. Do you see how important the Trinity is? The Trinity is our gospel. The God who has been Father and Son and Holy Spirit from all eternity has now acted to become your Father through the Son in the Spirit. And this is good good for us to remember. Because the Trinity is not just that God is bigger than we can imagine. He's closer than we can imagine. When we think about salvation, sometimes we only see the forgiveness of sins. But the Trinity tells us so much more. The Trinity reminds us that we're not just forgiven, but we're adopted. That how God treats the Son is how He now treats you. That was our assurance of pardon. He sends the Son to achieve our adoption, and now the Spirit rests in our hearts, so now we can actually call God Father. You see... The Trinity shows us that God does not just say, you're forgiven, now go. But I'm your Father, so come. 
The Trinity brings us into the full embrace of who God is from all eternity. And I was reminded how powerful this is from a news story a while back. In the winter of 1993, Mary Johnson, she lived up in northern Minneapolis and she received a phone call that no mother wants to receive. That her only son had been shot after a confrontation at a party the night before. And as, as a mother, her anger boiled, wanting justice for her son's killer, O'Shea Israel, who was 16 years old at the time. And she got it. O'Shea was convicted of the crime, but because he's a minor, he was only convicted to 25 years in prison instead of a life sentence. And as the years went by, something started happening to Mary Johnson. She actually wanted to go visit O'Shea in prison. And when she went and visited, O'Shea didn't really want to meet with her at first, not because of her, but because of him. He was too full of shame, too full of regret, couldn't face this woman who he had caused so much pain to. But eventually he agreed to meet with her. And before she could even get out a word, he poured out his regret. He poured out his sorrow, telling her how sorry he was for the murder of her son. And after he did all that, he asked if he could hug her. And during that hug, Mary said that all her hatred just flowed out of her. And she was able to forgive him, which is pretty incredible, right? A mother forgiving the killer of her son, visiting him in prison. But here's where the story gets crazy. This is a true story. She didn't just want forgiveness She actually wanted a relationship. So she kept visiting him a lot. Over the years, she would visit him and give him gifts and write him letters. And 17 years later, when O'Shea Israel was released from prison, you know who was there to meet her? Meet him? Mary Johnson in her church. And they threw a big welcome home party. And the biggest surprise of all was that she asked her landlord if he could move in next door. Her son's killer was now her neighbor, going from as far apart as you can go to as close as possible as a next-door neighbor. And if you see Mary Johnson today, she'll tell you about her two sons, one her biological son that died tragically, and one her spiritual son. And she carries a locket with both their pictures in it. If our heart explodes from a story like that, of a mother who would not only forgive her son's killer, but bring him in, what is your heart going to do with God? What is your heart going to do with a God who not only forgives your sins, but invites you into his very life? You see, the Trinity replaces our deepest fears. God is not far away. He is not distant. He is not indifferent to what's going on in your life. The Trinity is your greatest hope. God the Father has come after you with everything. He has given you His Son to save you. He's given you His Spirit to indwell inside you, make you alive, and bring you all the way home. So TCPC, I start out by asking, who is your God? Your God is the blessed Trinity, and He's yours to enjoy forever. Let me pray. Father, words are not enough. And so we desperately need your spirit to make this truth come alive in our hearts, to make us ache with how much we love you and want to worship you and want to behold you and gaze and enjoy you forever. 
Lord, help us. Lord, as we get to this meal, use this meal as a tangible and visible reminder just how much you love us and care for us. And now as you taught us to pray, we pray our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts. We forgive our debtors. Lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from evil. Thine is the kingdom, the power, the glory forever. Amen.